expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Here we go, episode 147 of the Dan and Nerdy Podcast, where I hope one of the things you love about this show is every six episodes, we don't change the entire cast. Yeah, like Marvel, who says, guess what, folks, in April... Eddie Brock is coming back in the Venom, and it's like, why? Why? It's six issues. You listen, Marvel, baby, sweetie pie. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Listen, stop. Just you, you have a good story with Venom. Why fuck it up? <laughs> well, and here's my thing. Doesn't it feel like we have to keep having the same conversation? Over and over and over again, you know? It's like it's like the kid that keeps sneaking out and taking the car, and you punish them, and you're like, stop taking the car. Stop taking... And then they keep doing it. It just keeps getting worse, and then finally, like, you know what? You're not getting a car, then. You're not going anywhere, kind of thing. Yeah, the car being my money, because I'm not going to re- read Venom anymore. And the thing is, listen, he- I don't know what they're going to do with Eddie Brock, but the thing is, when you bring somebody like him back in there... I don't know what the sales numbers are. I don't. But the thing is, the story they were doing was fantastic. Now, listen, what they're doing with the whole concept of, well, the Venom suit, the symbiote, is good now because everything with Flash Thompson, and now it's, it's on this, this criminal, and so it's doing bad things, and there's even parts of the dialogue where the symbiote's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to you know, kill these people or break these laws or whatever, and it's forced to do it. And over the past couple issues, you can kind of see it start to break bad a little bit more. So if I'm the writer, what I would do is I would say, okay, how can we capitalize on this? Instead of bringing in a, a character like Eddie Brock who doesn't have a lot of negative you know, traits, really, in terms of, oh, he's just outside of being a bad guy, I'm talking more about conflict. He doesn't have a lot of inner conflict. Make it to where, this is what, what I would do if I'm, I'm pitching the Marvel, make it to where, okay, this whole first few issues, actually it's probably the whole first arc, could be about free will, because that's what this whole first couple issues have been doing, is like, does a symbiote have free will, and, and because it's a, it is a living thing, so does it have free will? And then you have it to where, okay, the symbiote finally says, okay, you want to be bad, you want me to be bad and help you do these crimes, I'm going to be bad, and thus cause it to be really evil again, and creating a prison, if you will, for the person it's who's wearing it, for the host, who is this new host in the series. And that could cause the host to say, oh my god, what have I done? And then you turn the host into this whole anti-hero thing and make it kind of see the way, like a Scrooge type of thing, you know? Instead of seeing the tombstone of his, with his name on it, he's seeing the symbiote kind of saying, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. And that would have been a ten times better arc instead of saying, you know, we're just going to throw Eddie Brock in here for however long or whatever. And it's just, it just doesn't make sense, really, for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I would enjoy that story more, and I seem to find that more and more when I read Marvel. But I'm James with him alongside... The Merc with One Arm, Nick Pataglin. Man, you know, we talked about Marvel for a little bit. I just had to get that off my chest. But hey, it needed to be done. You had, almost wish you, have to, you had a magic wand that you could just make it go away. Well, right? no, I actually wish I had a right hand so I could actually do magic 
hand gestures. And then there's that. Because because the guests we have on this week, James, don't use wands. They use their hands and different types of spells as well. Yeah, because we have not only Hale Appleman from The Magicians, who plays Elliot, we have Summer Bischel as well, who plays Margo. So uh, if you've seen any of the promos or the trailers for Season 2 of The Magicians, or maybe you've already seen... The, the pilot, as it's already, I mean, the season two premiere, since it's already aired when this podcast is out, then you know that uh, we're in the presence of royalty this week. Oh, yes, and we're going to be talking to them about royalty, about some of the things in season one, some of our favorite scenes, and, and it's going to be a fun, fun time. But coming up next, we have two new comics to get through. What we're reading is coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Delete the News from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls, where we pull out our long boxes, we discuss what we're reading this week, and James, you know, a character in comics, I think, is one, well, I know it's one of mine, but I think in terms of just somebody who's been around for a while, I think when you think of, you know, Dynamite, you think of a lot of different characters, but you think of Vampirella as well, and of course, this week, I'm doing Vampirella number zero, now this is written by Paul Cornell, and the art and colors are done by Jimmy Broxton. Letters done by Travis Lanham. Now, here's what I'm going to say about this. I love the old monster movies. I've talked about this all the time on numerous shows. I love old Frankenstein, Briar Frankenstein. If you want a comic that literally reads like an old school monster movie... This is the comic for you. It seems like there's been a lot of luck with that lately, overall, as a matter of fact. I mean, when we talked about The Mummy before with, with Peter Milligan and from, from Titan, we got that feel. But to find out that we're going to get that from a Vampirella comic, I think that's a cool way to go. And not only that, but this is a zero issue. You know, this is before the one, so this is really setting up the series as it goes. Now, there was a series prior to where Vampirella was like a Hollywood starlet. She was popular and everything else that's alluded to in this book later on um but the way this is set up and i'm not gonna go through the whole plot but pretty much it's it's like an, an excavation pretty much it's it's a, a few people three people going on a a hunt if you will or more likely a search throughout this this arctic waste that's not wasteland but this arctic circle appears to be just this really cold place where there's a lot of snow and everybody's bundled up and they're searching for this thing. I'm not going to spoil what the thing is, but you can kind of guess what it is if, it's, if these, these three people are kind of going on excavation. Uh, but when they find this thing, it really, the, in terms of the art, turns into, again, that, that old... Like, you see, like, the original Dracula poster for the original Dracula from back in the day. Like, it looks like that. Like, it has that type of feel to it, aesthetically. And when they find what they're doing, they actually do something to uh, help this thing out. And by doing so, it kind of brings in certain elements of reading Greg Rucka's Wonder Woman, where she's like, what am I? Where am I? How long have I done this? It's that type of a thing with this, and it's really, really cool. And it pretty much, again, if you're somebody who did not read the series before this, or really any Vampirella before this, you're not going to feel lost, because it feels like just a new beginning. And actually... It feels like when you read this, you're reading a story, you read about what happens, and there's this book of like prophecies and everything else, and you're seeing what this is. There's some mysteries as to what happens later on in the book. It really brings you to the fact of a fresh start, but also there's some intriguing mystery as well. There's like some questions that you might raise in your own mind, and it's like, 
well, wait a minute, this person at the end, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, it, it's fierce and it's like charging and stuff like that. And it's just really, really fascinating. This whole book, and I'm not going to lie, going into this zero issue, I kind of felt like, okay, is this going to be a lot of exposition that's going to be really uninteresting and everything else? Mm-hmm. But again, when you put that together with the art style of Jimmy Broxton, you you get this kind of adventure, if you will, this kind of dark adventure. And at the end, you're, you're going to get this release of, oh my God, what you know, this turned out ten times better than I thought it was going to be. And that's not saying anything bad about it, it's just when you read a lot of Zero Issues, that tends to be the case. I will say this, you see the cover art, the cover art, in terms of Vampirella, and just in general, totally different. And that's normally a bad thing. When you say the cover art's totally different from what's on the inside, that's normally a bad thing. But another thing you said that was different when we were talking about this off the air is there's something funky going on with the lettering in this book too, right? Yeah, the bottom of each page is kind of narration, if you will. And it's talking about, like, Vampirella's dreaming of how peaceful it is in space. And it's just, you know, every page kind of has this. But the way that it's written, the way that it's lettered, I should say, is... Very flower child 60s. It reminds me of Yellow Submarine, actually. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. And it's very wavy. When you're reading it, if you're reading it at a certain pace, it feels like the letters are just waving and just going up and down like an ocean kind of effect. And it's really trippy, actually. Oh, definitely. It's very trippy. (laughs) Like, I don't smoke weed, but I mean... Shit, I was like, am I am I high right now? <laughs> like, <laughs> whoa, I have an extra, my arm grew back, man. I have like five five fingers on my right stub. That's never happened before. Bro, this comic is moving. <laughs> it's because you're turning the pages. Bro, oh. bro, they're all wearing like pink pants. <laughs> well, that's because they are wearing pink pants. So why are we reading this as Bill and Ted? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe it is a an excellent adventure. I mean, you tell us what you're rating for this I mean, thing. Uh, my rating for this thing, man, it's, it's a definite pull. And, I, and the thing is, for a zero issue to really grab me like it did, again, if you're a fan of the old school Hollywood monster movies, the way this thing's scripted out, the way it's written, it has that nice old school feel. It doesn't feel very modern at all, really. It has that 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 genuine old school feel. Uh, it's a definite pull for me. I think you're going to love this. So again, it's Vampirella number zero from Dynamite Comics. Go get it. And what I decided to do this week is, you know, there's certain characters for me that aren't necessarily in the mainstream, you would say. I mean, maybe there's an argument to be made for certain characters, but this particular character, when you see their con- their name on a comic, you can't really ignore it, and that's Justice League of America Rebirth, Killer Frost. So I could not let that go. And Killer Frost, before we dive into this comic, if you're reading the Suicide Squad vs. Justice League comic, she actually plays a pivotal role in that story, actually. And not only that, this is not the first time she's done that either. Either I mean, in the Forever Evil arc, she was kind of thrust into a hero role by necessity, almost, in that arc as well. So this, of course, written by the guy who's been writing a lot of these JL, all of the JLA Rebirth titles, that's Steve Orlando. Getting a little help from Jody Hauser on the writing, though, as well. Marika Andolfo is the artist. Arif Pintano is the colorist. And Clayton Cowles is the letterist. Woo! Man, I'm so happy I got this. It was like to making a making a run at Bell Rev there. It's like <laughs> like I had a hitch in Bell Rev, and that's what well, the reason I say that's because that's kind of where this book is. She's getting out to join the Justice League of America, but then something happens that involves. Well, I'll just say it because this should be no surprise given who's involved. 
it's Amanda Waller. And there's a, it, a lot of this issue is the back and forth between Amanda, Amanda Waller and Caitlin Snow. Because what I love what Steve Orlando's done here with Jody Hauser is they're blurring the lines of what is she now? Is she Killer Frost or is she Caitlin Snow? And that's something that's been very interesting about Killer Frost in general is of a lot of villains, really, because, again, she is Caitlin Snow. Uh, she has that kind of duality, if you will, of like, well, what am I? And it's kind of that, that, that walking a tightrope, if you will, but also kind of carrying a, a burden, a heaviness as well at the same time as trying to make her fall off of that. So, again, I think in comics, some of the most fascinating characters, like Killer Frost, are characters who have conflicts, have real character struggles, if you will. Not only that, but it's, it's funny we were talking about Venom uh, earlier, where she very much has that in this issue of the, is this need to feed going to take over me? Am I finally, is it finally going to give in? But then she's like, well, I'm not that person anymore. That's not going to be me. But of course, Waller being Waller, I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens, but she does a lot of things to kind of poke the, poke the bear a little bit and try and make her, I mean, I guess, I guess fall off the wagon is almost the best uh, description I can give for this, but I mean, there's there's very much a lot of that. But then there's a there's a point in this book where she puts her in another situation, and it turns out very interestingly there there there's something that happens between two characters in particular, who I won't really spoil for you, that uh, that has a different result than I think that you would kind of expect, and it makes the issue take a very interesting turn. Yeah, and I think that. The cool thing is, is that when you have somebody like Caitlin Snow, Killer Frost, who is very conflicted, having somebody like Amanda Waller there to again prod the bear, if you will, to kind of oh you know make her go one way or the other, make her go one way or the other. You need you kind of need that, you know. It can't just be like an inner struggle. You know, you need to have that kind of go back to the venom thing. You need to have that 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 thing that's pushing it towards the dark side, really. It's almost like the exact opposite of, like, if you had a mentor that was trying to push you along and saying, you, kn- I know you can do this. It's, this is in it, you. It's, it's, it's the exact opposite it's, of that. It's, it's like Mr. Miyagi telling Daniel, your parents divorced because of you. Right, exactly. So Waller's saying, you're a killer kind of thing. You will be a killer, and I'm watching you. And then let's just say somebody shows up at the end to kind of... Uh, pull her out of there and and but then there's this little hint at the end of the book of something that may play a role a little bit later on so it was just it was just really interesting and and I like the look I like the the look of the art in the in the um the the, the look that they kind of gave her they kind of modernized it a little bit the short hair I'm digging the short hair I'm digging the short hair I'm digging the look I think there's you know the one of the first pages of her wearing this like black jacket it has kind of I don't know about you it has a very Cruella de Vil feel to it. I think you're talking about like the like the fur the furish part of the, the top. Yeah, I see where I see where you get that with, from. Mixing with the hair a little bit, kind of like a modern day Cruella Deville. But I just gotta say this with Steve Orlando, uh, what he's doing with Sam this whole JLA universe. I read the Ray actually before we recorded this, and it's fascinating. Wow, the way he's setting this whole team up is very fascinating. Again, with Killer Frost and the whole, you know. Will she need to feed? Will she give in? That's going to present later down the line some very interesting arcs and storylines for the JLA. Totally. And, I mean, I haven't read a bad one yet. I mean, Vixen was excellent Vixen was as well. Great. I mean, I think that they're, they're setting something up here to make this Justice League of America book 
it's going to be really, really interesting. And the team that they're putting together was already intriguing enough. Now you see, you get this little, this little peek into each character's mindset before the group dynamic comes in. And then if you've been reading these, you can't help but wonder, okay, well, if this is how her story ends, how is it going to interact with her story or his story and stuff like that and the way that everybody has their own struggles and their own stuff that they're dealing with. And I will say that the art in these two, even though the, the, it's been different artists, has been remarkably consistent throughout. And I like how it ties into the to the to latest arc with the Suicide Squad and everything like that. So it not only makes me excited for more of these Rebirth books, I think we've got a couple of more yeah. uh, coming up, but it also makes me really excited for what Steve Orlando and company are going to do with Justice League of America in general. So this is another pull for me, or just buy it because you know it's just a Rebirth title, so... Go out and buy it, and don't be afraid to pick up some of the other ones. This isn't one of those kind of tie-in things where, oh, they don't matter, or it's not a good story. No, these are actually worth your money. And that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, we're going to be traveling to Charm City, and we're going to be, well, you know, we always talk about superheroes, James. We never really talk about the people who protect us from superheroes. That's coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book artist Eric Donovan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we've done shows in the past, Nick, where we talked about what if superheroes were real and what would be the consequences of that. But imagine living in a place with superheroes and having to protect yourself. And that is what Powerless on NBC is all about. Of course, premiering February the 2nd. That's a Thursday night. But we got a sneak peek and we're going to give you our spoiler-free thoughts on that right now. Yeah, now Powerless, for those of you who might not know what the show is about. And that's the reason why, is because they actually changed showrunners before this pilot airs. They, actually they changed, delayed it They delayed everything. it. So originally, it was going to be about this insurance company that insures people, takes care of them after superhero events take place. You know, for example, just use Man of Steel for reference. Like, the building that Superman Zod crashed through and destroyed, like, it would be like them kind of like, you know, doing insurance claims for that. Yep. But they said, you know what, we want to go in a different direction, we want to do di- things differently. So they're focusing now on this kind of arm, if you will, of Wayne, Wayne, uh, Wayne Really? Tech. Really? You're going to use arm? Yes, I am. You? Good. Okay. It's my review. I can talk about it the hell I want. Okay. All right. So they're pretty much using this uh, branch of the Wayne Corporation called Wayne Security. And what they do is they create things to protect people from superhero be- things. And some of the ideas they have are... Really hilarious. But, of course, the stars, Vanessa Hudgens, who plays Emily Locke. Alan Tudyk plays Van Wayne, who's Bruce Wayne's cousin. Yep. Uh, Danny Pudi plays Teddy. And you have, of course, Ron Funches, who plays Ron as well. And so it's, it's really a, a mixed bag of characters, if you will. It really is. And, I mean, what, what I loved about it was is that Alan Tudyk is Alan Tudyk. Danny Pudi is Danny Pudi. And, and Vanessa Hudgens... She's just she's just cute. I mean, I don't know how, how else to describe it. I mean, she is just ad- her energy alone, you know? She, she is, like, adorable. <laughs> she really is. I mean, but and what's funny is you thrust her in, like, a boss role. Right. Kind of thing. But she has this energy about her, and it's almost... And it's almost I mean, there's one you know, or two ways to think about well, it. Well, not just that, but I can't, I, I'm not going to discuss the reason why she's the way she is. But when you see why the way she is and the way people view her character and, and just the way how she's an energy, you really understand, like, okay, when she's acting this way, when she sees something that happens in the pilot, in the beginning of the pilot, 
and then people reacting differently to it, you can see why. And they explain on that, which is smart. And there's and the way her character is, there's actually a really great scene in the in the pilot between her and uh, Christina Kirk's character, Jackie, that's very interesting. And they kind of even get into more into what uh, Vanessa Hudgens' character Emily Locke is like. So, I mean, it's just, the, there's a great dynamic. One of the things that struck me about the show was not just the fact that it's funny, is the, the dynamic between the actual group, the core group anyway, is really good the way they play off of each other. And I think actually, if you want to go back to how the show started, I think all that goes back to really, I'm not going to lie, I think it goes back to the show's cr- opening credits because they do a nice little homage to the old DC books uh, in a certain way, but the things that they focus on in those credits really, I think, ties together of that this is who the show is about. And really, again, as you said, as the episode progresses, you see the kind of knitting of a unit become one and really kind of, you know, at first they're different, stuff like that. You find out why they're kind of not so warm to Emily in terms of, like, being the new boss, stuff like that, which, gets again, gets revealed later in the episode. But, again, as these things happen and this team really comes together, you really do feel that sense of family. You do feel that sense of, of uh, to use the term, you know, Misfit, you know, cast of misfit toys or misfit, you know, bunch of ta- ragtag group of people, if you will. Yeah, and it's hard for us to, to tell you too much because we are doing spoiler-free review here because we don't want to spoil it for you before it comes out on February the second, which of course is a Thursday again on NBC. But um, the, we can't reveal any of the jokes, which is kind of the frustrating thing because there is there are some in there, and I'm not even sure we can reveal what they're about. But let's just say that. They're jokes that you wouldn't expect, and they're jokes that you will appreciate for all the right reasons. I can label them two ways without telling people what they are. This show is not afraid to show you, like, and and really, in a sense, remember, this is a show that does not focus on superheroes. To pretty much reiterate, at certain cases, this is in the DC universe. So there's jokes that are about that. But really, this is a show, especially in this pilot, that shows DC is not afraid to make fun of themselves. Right, and that's the mark of any good good product, especially in comedy. I think you can't be afraid to make fun of yourself. Now, that's not to say you won't see superheroes in this show. Okay, so that doesn't mean it's not going to happen necessarily, but they make it very clear, like you said, even in the opening, oh, the opening montage of credits, the show, yeah. the opening credits, they make it very clear this is not a show that's going to be based on superheroes, and as you keep watching it, I don't know how you felt, but I kind of felt like you don't mind it. You know, you don't, you don't really, you don't, you kind of forget all about that. It felt refreshing. You know, as somebody who I post my Twitter all the time, I say things like, you know, I want to get into this show, but I'm watching, you know, Flash, I'm watching Arrow. Like, literally, a lot of my shows that I watch, pretty about 96% of the shows I watch are nerd centric. You know, Flash, Arrow, Gotham, stuff like that. You know, Gotham kind of was that first refreshing of like, oh, thank God, it's not just like with Batman and stuff like that. It's about the GCPD. It's about the city of Gotham. This really takes that to the next level where, again, it's that refresher of, okay, I'm not watching a superhero on screen every week. I'm focusing on the people of the city, really. And you're getting that idea of what makes a city work and just people's views towards the city and people's views towards Wayne's security. And it just really allows for, I think, really fresh writing and really fresh ideas to really permeate into this DC universe on television. Not only that, but you look at something like this on the surface and you say, okay, 
how are they going to do this as a comedy? Because you always look at the superhero realm, and I know you've got movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, and I mean, even Suicide Squad was funny as, as a movie as well, but then you look at this and you're like, how are you going to do a straight-up comedy based in a superhero type of atmosphere? And the way that they execute that, I think, is one of the, mo one of the biggest compliments of all that I can give the show is you took something that not only wasn't going to focus on superheroes, but wasn't going to be that serious thing that you usually focus on, even even in certain instances that are not supposed to be serious. This show just hits the mark on that. This is a show where its serious points come more from uh, not be you know moments of a character possibly not believing in themselves or kind of like you know what did I do? I feel like I'm letting somebody down. Those are, that's pretty much as most serious as you're going to get so far in this show. Again, there's only been one episode that we saw, and that's all we can take away from it, really. But really, the comedy aspect works because you, you cast people like Ron Funches, who's a stand-up comedian. He's really hilarious. You see him on At Midnight. He's one of the best people that they put on that show as well. Uh, you know, Alan Tudyk, Danny Pudi, you know, guys like that actors and actresses you know in the show who really do have the comedic timing and they really do well bouncing off one another not only that you get a guy like Danny Pudi who comes from a show like Community right. who's been working with that group dynamic for so long anyway stick him in another group dynamic and it's like you find yourself right at home but it made me I guess the biggest compliment you can give a show when you're done watching it is made me want to see the next episode yeah it made me want to keep going and, and I'm, in, I'm not going to lie and I think that you felt the same way too I won't put words in your mouth but i think when we find out that the showrunner was going and then there was right. the delay we're going oh man this this doesn't bode well at all but i mean way to buck the trend because I, I think that they made the right choice here i think they made the right choice as well again this is a show that wasn't a focus on like oh these people sell insurance if like superman crashed through your building or whatever but now it's like no we know these threats exist so let's take you know let's use this wayne security building as a, a lab to create things that can you know, not avert the situation, but can save people in these situations. Right, and they didn't crutch off name drop humor. No, either, which was which was really great too. The, the humor that they let it they let it be natural, <laughs> and it was just it was just really it was funny. I will say this: Alan Tudyk has some of the best lines, and I'm not going to say it because I don't want to spoil it. Of course, but I want them because you know the thing about jokes, and especially in, in a in a show like this, is you don't want to say what they are because you want them people to have that initial laughter reaction because we were watching this together, you and I, James, and when he's just going off the lines and just things you might see in pros and what he calls Bruce Wayne, who's his cousin, and you're just, like, sitting there laughing so hard. Like, it's just, again, it's kind of like when you have people like Tudyk and Danny Putty and, and Ron Funches and other people who have that kind of comedic timing, Pice is there like, did they improvise that line? Did they think about that, you know? Uh, and then also what's great about this as well is this is a show where it knows what it is, and, it, and that's why I love about it. We talked about unfortunate events last week. I said I love that it knew what it was in terms of what it contains, what it's about. And you know, you last you said with unfortunate events, even with Stranger Things, you said this was a show. And I talk about power. Talk about what we did last week with Stranger Things, or uh, in uh, unfortunate events. You're like, this is a show where you finish an episode, you finish the season. Like, I want more. I finished this pilot. I'm like NBC. Can I please? Can, like we're members of the media. Can we please have the full first yeah, season? Yeah. Can we just keep going? We won't spoil anything. Yeah, we promise. But if we can watch this now, like the whole first season, that'd be fantastic. And, that, and the thing is too about this that makes you want to go to the next one is each show is like what half hour long. Yep. Well, remember, 
NBC used to have the must-see TV Comedy Thursdays. They owned it with Friends and Seinfeld and Frasier and then at one point Will and Grace. So it, it seems like they've been trying to find that again. And look at this, Powerless is on Thursday night right. on NBC. Could this be the start of something powerful for, for the lineup on Thursdays again? I don't know. You know this is the first time you used a pun, I don't want to kick you in the dick. There you go. <laughs> All right, everything's coming up, Rose. Here we go. Everything's coming up with them. <laughs> but with that being said, man, you know, we I think we did a great job of not spoiling anything. So without further ado, let's give a range. You know, I'll go first this time. So the writing, I want to talk about that real quick. The writing really punchy. It goes, you know, punchline, punchline, punchline. But there's times where it lets certain jokes develop. It's, it's a nice mixture. It's not just rushing to get to that next joke, that next, you know, thing. And also, they use the environments well to tell the jokes. That's what I love. They use, it's not just, you know, one line and then punch. It's using the environments around them, what's in the lab, what's what's in the city to, to build on that humor. And... What else I like about this, too, is just, honestly, if you really think about it, it's one of the more colorful DC shows, just more colorful superhero shows we've seen on TV, just from what people wear, just to, in the way the office is set up and everything like that. It's really awesome. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens was fantastic as Emily. She was kind of, you know, playing that straight woman role, if you will, you know, that uppity kind of like, we can do better, we can be better, and everybody's kind of like, you know, again, bringing the together as a group of misfits, if you will, to, to reignite that fire. I love this show. I really cannot wait to see how the rest of the season turns out. Again, I really wish we had like the full season because I would just watch it all night long. I'm giving this 10 out of 10 things Superman might be able to bounce off of. <laughs> Man, I got to say that I'm going to take it a little bit further from what you said about the writing, which I agree was great, in that, I mean, to the producers and everybody that put this show together, for not thinking, okay, well, if we don't do this, and we don't do this, and we don't do this, people won't care. People won't like this show. People won't want to watch this show. For anyone who allowed this show to just be what it was and not feel like you had to drop names all over the place or give Easter, a thousand Easter right. eggs all over the place, I mean, bravo just for that alone. But then what you did was you gave us this, this group dynamic where – you gave us so many likable characters for different reasons. I mean, even Alan Tudyk was great <laughs> as Van Wayne, Danny Pudi. Again, being Danny Pudi, you allowed, if you're fans of these actors and actresses before this, you're going to like this because they are being allowed to play their own roles. They're being who they are on, these show, on this show. So you bring that all together. And any fears that you might have had when any of the changes or anything going on with Powerless... I think goes away immediately. So I'm going to give this 10 bouncing pumpkins out of 10. <laughs> so that's the thing, too, is we can't spoil anything. So even within our ratings, we can't, like, say it's this, you know, or it's that. We have to, like, keep the sword around. But I think that when you watch this on February 2nd, you are going to fall in love with the show and the characters within it. And also, one thing about this, too, I'm seeing on IMDb right now. Uh, that it's ten episodes a season, so which is which, which is nice. At least that's what we have right, right now. now. Maybe they order more. Right. We will find out. You know how that kind of stuff goes. Right. You get they, you say it's going to get this many episodes, and then they, maybe they order more. I'm hoping for more. I'm hoping for more, but that's going to do it for our spoiler-free review of Powerless. But come next, we have a bunch of nerd news to get to, including the Last Jedi. This is writer Paul Aller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Well, nerds, it's time again that week where we do grab our joysticks once again for the second week in a row and go around the interwebs and see what's trending because it's time for what, James? Nerd Nerd News! And we were going to actually start this week off by talking about the new Star Wars title, but, but... Marvel and Square Enix had different ideas. Yeah, and you know, the whole fake news was floating around the internet on the Nerdosphere, and looks like it wasn't about Kingdom Hearts 3 after all. And yeah, Square Enix and Marvel's announcements were the same, that they've signed a multi-year, multi-game deal to put some stuff together. It's going to start with something that's right now tentatively called the Avengers Project. Right, and of course, they're saying that is what the stories that we've read so far have said, is that Square Enix... You know, they do the Final Fantasy stuff, of course. This isn't really going to be head up by Square Enix themselves. They said they're looking more towards their Western divisions. We're talking about Crystal Dynamics, who, of course, do the Terminator series and IDOS as well. I got to tell you, man, when I saw Crystal Dynamics in this story, that's the part that made me go, oh, okay, now we're getting somewhere. I mean, the cred that they've built with Tomb Raider alone. I got to tell you man, I'm really really excited and I think it's I think it's actually kind of smart that they're starting out with an Avengers name. I, I mean uh, an Avengers title. I mean, I know it's everybody in the pool kind of thing, but it gives you a nice starting off point and it shows you what I guess they can do with each character because you know there's going to be individual games too. Well, the first game that popped in my head when I saw that Square Enix's divisions were going to do this, of course, RPG stuff, you know, Deus Ex as well. First thing that popped in my head was Marvel Ultimate Alliance from back in like 2006 yep. that was actually published by Activision at the time. And that was RPG uh, style that was, you know, you had four or five different players at once. You can build your own team kind of a thing. You can upgrade them as well. So that was the first thing that popped in my head. You know, if this is going to be an Avengers game, it'll be the first game they're going to do, which is going to be an Avengers title. I can see that dynamic where you can build your own Avengers team, give them certain attributes and stuff like that. And just, you know, as they said in the trailer, it's the whole, you know, reassemble. So that's the key of it. I think you're going to be reassembling your own team in this game. Yep. And not only that, it looks like we're not going to get too much more information until 2018 about any of this stuff. Of course, you know, that's right around Avengers Infinity War. But what I like is they said that these are going to be unique stories. So what exactly I don't want to see is this at all tied to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, if you want to make the characters look like they do in the movies, I don't really have a problem with that. Like, if they did a, like, let's let's say they went the, the Netflix route and they decided to do a Defenders game at some point. If you want to make Luke Cage look like Mike Coulter or, or Jessica Jones look like Kristen Ritter, I don't have a problem with that. But I don't need this to be tied to the movies. As a matter of fact, I don't want it to be tied to the movies or the shows or anything. I don't think it will be tied to the MCU or the Netflix universe, but I will say this. living Knowing the fact we live in a DLC world, a DLC gaming culture, I can see them doing like skin packs, like Netflix yeah. skin packs and the MCU skins and stuff like that. But overall... And I'm cool with that. Right. But overall, I think that, you know, it's funny. We start the, the show off by bashing Marvel and their comics, and then it's like, hey, you might actually have something good here. You know, it's not all... Bad, you know. That's the thing too that I want to get across. We don't just bash Marvel to bash Marvel. We, we equally bash companies all all together. It's just you know some companies make good moves. Sometimes the same companies do bad ones. It's right. just that's what we we do. But looking at this with the game, I mean, again, I can't wait to see more. But again, this is also going to be we just got a, a teaser trailer. Really, 
I need to see gameplay. I need to have yeah. gameplay. I need yeah. to see pl- – plus, you know, even though we do live in a world of next-gen or current-gen with PS4 and Xbox Ones and soon-to-be Project Scorpios, I want to see the transition from cutscene to game. If it's a drastic drop-off, if it's like Ultimate Alliance, you have That's these beautiful the cutscenes, right and then you see the gameplay, and it's like, oh, these are PS2 graphics that's going to change but if it's like a smooth transition which i would expect it to be then that's that'd be great enter crystal dynamics because that's right. exactly what they did with tomb raider they made they made sure that the gameplay didn't suffer in the face of the cutscenes. so i love that the fact that crystal dynamics is going to be involved and and i'll say this man i i don't want to see because i know that there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, other games other than this I just want to caution fans that I don't want to see a thousand, oh, they should do insert character name, here's game. That would be awesome. Because I'm going to tell you right now, nine times out of ten, probably not the case for the rest of the world. I mean, I know that you might want your Rocket Raccoon standalone game, but uh, they got to sell games here. So, I mean, you got to be realistic. (laughs) Well, not just that, but if you really look at Marvel gaming titles throughout the years, single character titles really don't do that well. No, they don't. Like, they're not really the best games. The only two single-title games I think that were really good, uh, Spider-Man 2 was fantastic because it really was one of the first games in terms of superhero games to really do the whole go through the city, have side missions and stuff like that, and quests, if you will. Uh, also, even though the movie was terrible, X-Men Origins Wolverine yeah, yeah, is everything you want a Wolverine movie, or game, I should say, and even movie to be. Uh, so those, I think, were, were really great. I'm talking mostly, again, the Marvel single universe. I'm not talking about Arkham or anything like that, because that's DC. But let's do this real quick. You have, a, you have okay, this, say in this next Marvel Square Enix game, you can do like what Ultimate Alliance did, say you have four players or four characters on your team. Who is your four going to be comprised of? You can have anybody in the Marvel Universe. Not anybody? We're talking yeah. just heroes too, right? We're talking just heroes. All right, well, I mean, i got to have Cap. Can't roll without Cap, so I'm going to get Cap. Uh, let me see. I think i got to go Thor. I'm going to go with Cap, go go with Thor. Um, I think I'll go Captain Marvel, because I think you need, you need more leadership there, so go Captain Marvel. Ah, uh, can we, do we count Spider-Man? Cause he has his yeah, own game. It, no, we can count Spider-Man. Okay. Then Spider-Man. I'm going to roll, I'm going to roll Spidey then as well. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Deadpool, of course. Well, of course, uh, I'm going to go with Spider-Man as well. Uh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go a little bit different. I'm going to go Ghost Rider. Ooh. And then for my fourth, that's the thing is the fourth is always tough because you're like looking at your roll decks of like who you want to put in there. Yeah. Oh, man. Fourth. I'm like looking through my head. I mean, I don't, and the thing is I don't want to copy yours. I mean, Captain Marvel, yeah, but. Yeah, well, part of that was just to keep an eye on Steve because apparently he's <laughs> iffy now, so. Right. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to go with. You know, a character that's really been growing on me has been Gamora. So I'm going to go Gamora. Ooh, taking her out of the Guardians. Interesting. Yes. I mean, if you're going if you're going to go badass and you want somebody that's going to be able to throw down, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, putting Black Panther in there would have been easier, too. But I think, like, you know, if you put, like, Ghost Rider in there. Except yeah. I, the one I like is I like, I like making my team kind of, like, 
Whenever I do games like RPGs, I like making my team kind of the group of misfits. Like people you went with the grunge really... team too. You were right. a total grunge team. Right. You, you went with the people that are like, you know what, screw all of you guys. I'm taking you down right now. That's the team you went with. I will say that I almost went with Doctor Strange because I thought I'm like, think about all the things you could do with Doctor Strange well, that's in a tough your team, thing. you know. But that's tough too because he could be vulnerable as well. But that's a tough thing too because like, even though the MCU's been around for a while, you don't want to go, like, all MCU team kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nah. But moving on to our next story, of course, deals with Star Wars. And we finally know what the title of Episode eight is going to be. It's going to be The Last Jedi. Now, I do want to point out before we dive further into this that Jedi is both singular and plural. Yep. So we don't know who The Last Jedi really is. Not only that, but, I mean, Mark Hamill had some interesting comments uh, recently. I can't remember who the interview was with off the top of my head, but he said that there was a lot of stuff in the crawl for Episode Seven that kind of alluded to it was, The Last Jedi it, and stuff and like was that. A, and it was, it's, it was, yeah, it was Episode Seven. the crawl alluded to saying, like, Luke Skywalker, and it was like, comma, The Last Jedi. And then he also said something about uh, he saw that Luke was going to be destroyed or something like that. Now, I want to pause right there for just a second. Destroyed, again, like you said, how things can be plural. Destroyed can mean many things. It doesn't necessarily mean dead. It could also mean turned. <laughs> can you just imagine, like, just salt in the wound of just uh, those who grew up or even really love, like, deeply love the original trilogy? It's like, Han's dead. Leia died in real life. Yep. If you kill off Luke, man, that's just... Well, that, here's the thing. What would be worse? Killing off Luke or seeing Luke go dark? Killing off Luke would be worse because I think it's an easy route. I think we've gotten to this point where in Star Wars, really, whenever there's a passing of the, tor- the torch moment, it's like, okay, we're going to pass the torch off. We're going to kill this person. Seeing, I think, Luke go to the dark side or honestly... We could see Ray go to the dark side. Remember the whole Knights of Knights of Ren thing. True. So if, imagine if Ray went dark and went with her cousin to the dark side. I think that'd be pretty interesting. I mean, I think we, we still need to find the story of why Luke really took off. I mean, we think we know why he left after everything that happened with the, with the with the young ones getting massacred and stuff like that. But maybe he took off because not just that, but because he did, it wasn't sorrow or regret that he really felt it was anger and he kind of teetered on dark side and return of the jedi anyway so i mean maybe he took off because he thought he was one foot over the edge and he might be getting ready to go over well what i've been reading with some of the stuff i've been hearing about luke has been more of the fact that like his powers in terms of the force and everything have gotten beyond probably luke luke is Luke is like Yoda or right above Yoda in terms of his powers. And so he feared that like, you know, his powers would destroy the galaxy or destroy whatever, become set to harm to the Republic. So he just went out and, you know, again, pulled a Yoda and just went and just, you know, deserted himself pretty much, just put himself away from people. I think this is where it becomes Rey's story, though. I mean, I really do. I mean, I'm not saying that Rey is the last Jedi. I'm not going there. But I just th- I think that this is the movie. I think Episode Eight is where we finally... This this becomes Rey's story and maybe a Rey and Luke story. And I don't even care who her parents are. I don't care who she's related to anymore. I just think that this is kind of where it's going to be her story. But what's going to be interesting is... is where they what they decide to do with The Last Jedi. Because I think your point's one that not enough people are making. That Jedi is both a singular and plural term. So, I mean, if you look at it in face value and, and you obviously think it might be one person, 
but that's not necessarily the case. Maybe it's Luke and Ray. Maybe it's Luke and Ray and someone else that we don't know about yet. Who knows? So it just it doesn't answer any questions for me. It just opens up more possibilities. Right. Of course, we can't really get an idea of what's really going on until we, of course, see the first trailer, which right. I can imagine is going to be a few. I'm honestly going to think that they're going to probably show a trailer, probably like SDCC or something like that, because it comes out in December. Yeah, so, I think that that's right around the time. I think SDCC is going to be the first time we get a trailer, probably right before it, maybe. May, uh, may at the earliest. I mean, if they really want to just uh, like May the 4th be with you kind of thing, if they wanted to drop. Maybe a teaser trailer. When did we get? When did we get? We got. Remember, we got a teaser for Rogue One. When was that? It was like was that SDCC? Because remember, it was just like a planet. It looked kind of like Endor, and it was just a couple of uh, X wings flying over. And it said Rogue it was, One. I think it was SDCC. Yeah, I think it was something like that. I mean, I know that they always like to drop something on May the Fourth. Be with you. I'm not sure yeah. if that's when they want to try and do something like that. But I mean, full trailer probably not that early. I think you're right. Full trailer SDCC. But I wouldn't be surprised if we get a teaser of some kind in May. But you know, teasers from Star Wars and Disney are very much teasy. You know, if you want to talk about teaser trailers for other things, they usually give you a little bit of something. They're not going to give you shit. They'll give you like a couple of lines of narration possibly and then like the title and then cut to black. They'll give you like Ray trying to hand Luke his lightsaber and it looks like Luke is reaching for it. And right before his hand touches it, they fade it out and give you the title <laughs> sequence. <laughs> like you guys are dicks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just uh, just it's like the whole episode eight, just an epic stare down between Luke and Ray. Just That's being... the first 15 minutes of the movie. That's just what we don't know. <laughs> but i mean overall i mean i mean this is as somebody who wasn't a fan of the force awakens and i'm not gonna dive into why uh i think that episode eight has a lot riding on it i think that for totally. people like myself who didn't like force awakens if episode eight goes south you know and stuff like that or at least draws too much from empire strikes back which a lot which is my fear is that this is just the original trilogy just redone with a new fresh coat of paint. But That's new gonna... director, new vision. Right, but remember, it is Disney. Disney likes True. to play it safe. True. I mean, look at the Marvel movies. They follow the same formulas, so in terms of script and beats. True. Even though it's different directors, so, I mean, we'll see. But speaking of, of different directors, a movie that's had, well, it's going to be on its third director when they hire somebody, but... Uh, they're also on their f- third writer, and that, of course, is DC's The Flash. Now, of course, it stars Ezra Miller as Barry Allen in The Flash, but here's the thing. So they had a writer on it, and he left. And so, and it, they had, you know, uh, they got the director from Dope, who was their second director, he left. And it's all over creative differences and stuff like that. So who do they get to, of course, pen the third time, the third time in the third script for The Flash. And they got Joby Harold. And I got to tell you this. The way this is going, The Flash runs through writers and directors like Batman runs through Robins. Like yeah, except age isn't a factor here, apparently. But, but here's the thing I want to point out about Joby Harold is – he was an executive producer on Edge of Tomorrow. Of course, he Tom Cruise, you know, live, you know, kill, repeat, stuff like that kind yep. of movie. Yep. He's also 
working on he was a producer for robin hood he's also producer for king arthur legend of the sword but here's what really really scares me about this the last time he wrote something not produced but he wrote something before this year before king arthur was awake in 2007 oh no no yeah. bubba no yeah. No. Oh, gosh, man. Yeah. You know. And for people who don't remember what Awake is, it's a movie that had Hayden Christensen, Jessica Alba. It was about, you know, a guy having open heart surgery, basically, and uh, him being awake during it, pretty much. Couldn't it, you really have just stopped by saying it was a movie that had Hayden Christensen? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of almost could have well, stopped I mean, there. I mean, here's the thing, like, there's a gap. Now, I don't know why he didn't write or direct or produce anything from 2007 to yes, like you do. Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, you do. Well, he, he, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he did Awake, and that's probably what did it. <laughs> Even though, the point is I actually have Awake on DVD, and it's... it's <laughs> can I say that, like, it's one of those movies where it's not a perfect movie, but it's one, like, if I'm bored, I will sit and watch it. I mean, it's... Jessica Alba's in it, so I'm going to give you a pass there. Well, not, yeah. <laughs> well that's kind of why I got it, because I had a huge crush in college and, on Jessica Alba. And that's okay. You know how many crap Alyssa, Alyssa Milano movies I've seen? <laughs> I had a Jessica Alba Sin City poster on my dorm room. My, wall my and door that tells you all you need to know right there that that's, <laughs> that speaks volumes right there <laughs> but i mean that's what scares me about this man is that this gives me is that i put on my twitter and i put on my my facebook i said this really gives me ant-man vibes where edgar right. wright there was yeah. years and just years you know this was in pre-production hell and they're going through directors and they got Peyton reed and it's just yeah. i mean and it worked out but at the same time, you have to you have to think. I mean, first, the first person they hired was Seth Graham Smith, who realized hadn't done anything, you know. So so you started with that, and then of course Warner Brothers isn't going to trust like a like a, a newbie like that. So then you go out and get the the, the well, it dope. was. And I mean, who are who are we we trusting here? Because if if the vision, if they're not seeing Warner Brothers' vision, Warner Brothers' vision also brought us Batman versus Superman. But here's the thing about Seth Graham Smith is that. You know, he did, of course, Pride, Presidents, and Zombies, which was, at the time, it was the latest thing he had done outside of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which really wasn't great. Now, that really was Pride, Presidents, and Zombies. No. You know what he did write, though? The Batman Lego movie. Okay, so that's that's something. But we and, haven't seen and, it yet, so we don't know how it's going to be. So right, it's, so. The jury's still out. Yeah, you reserve your judgment on that, but I mean, it's almost, you almost look at all the trailers and everything, you're like, all right, how bad could it be? I mean, it's still Lego Batman, and the things, everything that happened in the Lego movie. I mean, you got a little bit of cred there, even though I really didn't have anything to do with that. But first of all, no way this Flash movie makes 2018. I'm sorry. Oh, there's God. No, no way. There's no way this movie makes its 2018 release date now. But I would rather them wait than try and rush something into production just to keep on a schedule. But here's the deal, man. I know he's busy. I, I promise you I know he's busy. But you got a, you got a guy already that could probably write you a good script for a Flash movie, and that's Jeff Johns. I mean, the yeah. guy wrote the Flash Rebirth, not the latest one, but the original one with Ethan, the Ethan Van Shriver one. Yeah. The guy knows how to write. I'm glad you brought up Jeff Johns. He was actually my next point, is that 
yeah, he's busy, but he's not just busy doing his comic book thing. He's busy overseeing the entire DCEU, being that Kevin Feige. You know, he, he is being that guy. So him being able to sit down and actually focus on writing a script for a feature-length film is going to take time that he obviously more likely does not have. But I also want to bring up Jeff Johns because even though we talk, kind of like, ooh, we don't know how this is going to go, at least he knows in which way he wants the DCEU to go. Right. That's so, so in terms of tone and just arc and story, and again, the reason why Seth Graham Smith left and people left is because of creative differences. So maybe they said, you know, Jeff, we want to do it this way. And he probably thinks, well, you know what? I did write The Flash with, you know, when Ethan Van Scarver did the art and stuff like that. You know, this isn't, you know, I want to be more in the kind of that realm that I did it, you know, and just have that kind of feel that when I did it. And again, remember the whole first director for Wonder Woman left because she wanted to go totally off comic and do which was things. that was a good move and that was a good move. Yeah, they they made the right decision there to bring in Patty Jenkins. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, the DCEU is in this crumbled state, if you will, and Jeff Johns has to super glue it all back together, rebuild that base. So I think that he by him kind of putting his foot down in terms of just, you know, how they want things to be done, how he wants things to be done. And to me, it's different It's different than Disney because Disney's like, we're Disney. We need to have it in a certain way. We need to play it safe. Right. We need to have a certain thing. Warner Brothers, I think, is more of like, hey, we got Jeff doing this, man. He's going to have control over it, whatever. That's going to be the thing. Think about this, though. The, the two movies that we've been talking about the most as far as changes and stuff goes like that or potential changes are Aquaman and The Flash, written by who at one point or another? Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns. Yep, exactly. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Of course, anytime you have this stuff happen, you should worry about it. I'm worried about it. I don't know whose vision that is not being seen here, because if it's Warner Brothers, I'm worried about it, because I can't imagine what their vision is, but if it's Jeff Johns' vision... I'm going to sit back and trust Jeff Johns. That I'm just I'm just worried about who's the one that may, is making these decisions and based on what. Exactly. And our final story still pertains to DC, but it goes more, of course, to the comics realm. And the fact is, you know, we both love Batman. We both love The Shadow. It's, and it's something that James and I have been talking off-air. It's just like kind of crossovers we would love to see. And, you know, we were talking off-air in, in a meeting we had. We were just putting together the week's show. We are like... We would love to see a Batman Shadow, you know, comic crossover take place and stuff like that. And, well, goddamn, DC must have bugged our phones or our laptops or something because that crossover exists and it's coming out on April 26th. Not only that, not only does it exist as part of the collaboration between DC and Dynamite, it's going to exist with Scott Snyder. Steve Orlando and Riley Rossimo. I mean, come on. Hollywood Reporter broke some of the uh, interior art as well, and you just look at it and it's like, man, this is exact. This is exactly what we wanted, and it looks like the story is going to follow something really interesting too. Right, and here's what the story is going to be. It's that murder has come to Gotham, so Gotham, of course, is protected by Batman. He discovers a trail of evidence that's leading to a suspect by the name of Lamont Cranston. Now, the only problem with that, of course... Is Cranston has been dead for over 50 years. So pretty much it's one of those things where as Batman tries to unravel stuff about Cranston's life, the shadows are going to kind of come in here 
and try to stop Batman from learning too much. And a feeling that I had about this is like a, a kind of a, there was a, a a game, if you will, but not really a game. It was like it was called Batman by Gaslight or something like that, or Gas Lamp. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like Batman set in like the Victorian era. So I'm like, if you brought Batman back to like the 1950s or Shadow era, that'd be pretty interesting. But this looks like it's going to be more, I would say, set in the modern modern day, yeah. which is fine. But I mean, you have these two great detectives from different eras coming together in a sense and just trying to like one's trying to figure this thing out one's trying to like you know stop him from learning too much it's going to present some interesting things because it's like this man when you see that you know people think that the, the bat signal is scary well when you see the shadow laugh like, that's, like can you imagine though like that I'm so looking forward to the panel of Batman in like an alley or somewhere dark and you see ha 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 like going yeah. all over the place. And, and not he went, that he's not familiar right, with that. Right. But, <laughs> but can you imagine that that may might his first thing is is that might be the Joker when it's yeah. not. Like that could yeah. bring up some interesting things. And I am just oh, I'm so happy for this thing. I cannot wait for April to come around. It's so it's gonna be awesome. Like what do you yeah. expect? I mean, I ran through what the story's going to be about, but what's one hope you have for this? Well, and I mean, I know that we know that they first met back in the 70s, so it's not the first time they've met, but it's been a while, but they haven't actually had a series together, so that's the thing that's got us so excited. One thing that I think will come into play is the fact that even if they decide to team up at some point, that the Shadow uses guns. Yeah. Batman does not. So how is that going to play through? That could be something. And and what makes them come together or do they? And I'm not sure that I don't want this to be. I'm not sure I don't want. I want them to come together in this. I'm not so sure that I want them to just be at odds with each other. And maybe at some point at the end of the last issue, they come to some sort of understanding. Or maybe it's a, hey, you stick to your side. I'll stick to my side. You do things the way you want to. I'm going to do things the way I want to. But the clash of these personalities is going to be very interesting. As a matter of fact, I'm not so sure that I'm just as excited for a Bruce Wayne Lamont Cranston meeting as I am for a Batman in the Shadow meeting because those two personalities would be really interesting as well. Yeah, man. I mean, and that's the thing is that you have these two, as I said, these two detectives from these two different eras, and it's just p- putting them together in the same book and giving them their own series together is something that's very interesting. It's very compelling because, you know, one thing we know about <clears throat> versus comics and stuff like that is that, you know, there's always going to be a point where they're going to fight each other for a little bit, possibly then they're going to kind of come to terms because there's going to be a greater threat possibly that, that involves them say, okay, we got to put our differences aside and we have to work together. But if that's the case, they're keeping this whole possibility you know, uh, of Cranston's life a secret and when Batman's going forward this, like we, this could change shadow comics going forward. Like this could change Batman comics going forward. You know, like this is going to be some really, the one thing I want to stress with this is that this comic, I think is going to be so much more detailed on the detective side of these two people. Which is what I think is going to be great. Oh God. Yes. Oh God. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and throw this on the table, just to be a dick. Um, depending on what timeline they use, uh, Lamont knows how to keep a woman. <laughs> just saying, Margo's been there, and uh, Bruce has had a little bit of trouble. 
So, uh, be very interesting to see if that dynamic plays out. So, could you imagine if Bruce starts hitting on Margot or something <laughs> like that? Could you imagine that? You know, the billionaire playboy versus the, versus the smooth Lamont Cranston right. for the heart of Margot Lane kind of thing before he even knows what's going on with the shadow and whatnot? I think that'd be too much. I think that that'd be kind of like... Uh... To me, that's kind of a weak way to have them kind of go at each other. But I'm not saying I'm not saying like a steal your girl kind of thing, but like okay. it's a funny moment in the book. Oh, like Bruce just hits on, like like Bruce hits on Margot, but doesn't know she's with Chris. Right, exactly. Like that's that. exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that's why they would clash, but have that little funny moment in the book where it's like, are you freaking kidding me right now? <laughs> really, you're gonna do this? Okay. Right, well, well, Penny on all this different stuff, Margot could, could be like 80 years old, so I don't know, <laughs> you know, you don't know how this is going to be. Then, then there could be that, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and, I, I mean, if if she's still around, too, we got to keep that in mind. Right, I, don't know, I mean, I don't know if Batman's going to be rocking the walker, if you'll say, but I mean, you know, <laughs> you know I, I don't know if he'll, if he, if he'll, he'll uh, do that, but I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see, and you know, the funny thing was getting ready to go into February, and... Overall, man, I think April, I can't wait for it to come in uh, April 26th. But that's going to do it for Nerd News. We come next. The Magicians had their season two premiere recently. And guess what? We had two, yes, two main members of the cast on to join us and talk about what's due for season two. We have Hale Appleman and, of course, Summer Bischel. And they're coming on to talk about The Magicians on Sci-Fi next. Hi, I'm Simone Mythic from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's not every day you see somebody go from mixologist to his majesty, but that's exactly what we had happen because we've got, is he the king of fillery? I guess we'll find out in season two of The Magicians. It's Hale Appleman. Hale, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm really great. How are you? We're doing great. As a matter of fact, heading into the finale of season one, there were certainly some uneasiness with the group after the whole thing that happened with Quentin and Margot and Elliot before heading to Fillory, and even after their face-off with the Beast. So what would you say the current state of the group is in Season 2? Yeah, well, there's a little bit of a disjointed uh, emotional uh, wreckage, you could say, that that we're trying to parse together in the beginning of Season 2, but um, I think that Elliot and Margot are will always find each other again. And actually, I think that Quentin and Elliot also have an understanding with each other. Uh, and I think that, I don't think that they hold grudges. I think they, they have a bit of a, a mirror uh, in each other. I think they, they see a little bit of themselves in each other and, and they're easy. It's, I think it's easier for Elliot to, to forgive Quentin um, than it is perhaps for Alice. So I think the real uh, crux of that whole situation and, and the, the healing that needs to happen there is really uh, more coming to terms with um, Elliot and Alice, Alice and Quentin, Alice and Margot, etc. You know, Hale, in season one we saw Elliot go from an upbeat Prince of Break Bills, if you will, to a person who became broken and traumatized after he had to kill his boyfriend, Mike. So in what ways... Yeah. Will being King of Fillory sew up his wounds from last season? I don't think being King will solve anything for him. I think that if any, I think I think Elliot is attached to the persona he created at Breakfields and will stop at nothing to try and reclaim that. I think that he feels quite literally and also emotionally displaced in Fillory, and I think that a lot of this season is about him 
coming to terms with the fact that he has uh, an insane amount of responsibility that he uh, has no idea how to handle. And his willingness to even try is kind of on the back burner. Um, he, he wants to recreate his past. So yeah, being a king is, is a complex issue, and um, Elliot has to come to terms with what he's chosen and what he's volunteered himself for, which uh, is more than he bargained for. Oh, absolutely. From the very beginning of the show, actually, Hale, we see that Elliot and Margot definitely have a special bond. And we've seen, we've also seen in the trailer and some behind-the-scenes videos that Elliot makes Margot his queen. So what can you tell us about their reign early on in the season, or would you describe it differently? Well, I would say that, you know, that that Elliot and Margot are almost a, uh, a soulmate aspect to their relationship. They, they will always find each other. They have been the most important person in each other's lives um, up to this point. And um, him crowning her queen is a, a no-brainer. So uh, I think what might you know surprise some fans more than anything is that they, they have quite different styles of rulership and they have different ideas about what it is to be a a royal king or queen of Hillary. And so there's um, some uh, some latent uh, tension there, uh, some a little bit of drama that might appear at some point in terms of their differences. And Hale, actually going back to season one, a very memorable moment for me actually was from, of course, last season when you and the other upper class were having all the freshmen and newly magicians going through like all those trials and stuff. So what was it like filming those scenes and what was your favorite part of that? Of the trials? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a very kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek Alice in Wonderland reference to have a banquet table in the middle of a forest with, you know, tea and crumpets and little finger sandwiches. So, um I appreciate the kind of nod to all of the great fantasy literature and and um, just the references that the show kind of wears on its sleeve. I um, I appreciate that as kind of a a meta kind of essential part of the fabric of what it is that we do on the magician. So um, that was fun, and uh, you know the the locations that we get to travel to in general on the show are. are Phenomenally beautiful. Um, we shoot in Vancouver, and uh, the forests there are some of the most beautiful I've ever seen in my life, and um, it's just really breathtaking. So, yeah, I feel lucky to, to be a part of it. We're talking to Hale Appleman, who of course plays Elliot on The Magicians. You can watch season two every Wednesday night at nine o'clock on Sci-Fi. Now, Hale, season one actually just made its way to Netflix a couple of weeks ago, giving people a chance to kind of binge watch before the season two premiere comes up. So what is it like getting fresh reactions from new fans who are just discovering the show now? And does it bring back any memories? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that we just uh, we just opened up to a, an entirely new uh, fan base, uh, a much greater audience has, has has seen season one now, and I think that that will continue. And it's it's really nice to have a kind of influx of fresh voices. And you know, people people either love it or they hate it. And you know, it's a, it's a polarizing show in a way that I that I think I like. And uh, I'm I'm excited for more and more people to to get to see it. I think season two is going to be. Uh, uh, much bigger in scope uh, and 
and also in in the relationships of the characters. I think we see a lot of characters interactions deepen, and uh, I think that that's a significant step forward, and I'm I'm very excited about it. And of course, in order to get into break bills, a potential magician must pass an entry exam. So, if you were to create your own entry exam for magicians, Hale, what would your last question have to be on the test? I guess it would be like, what is what is magic to you, and and, and yeah, and why? That's a pretty straightforward enough. I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, you you better know, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a crucial piece. Now, Hale, every school has their mascot, but you're no longer at Break Bills. You're in Fillory now. So I right. can't help but wonder, if you're if Fillory had a mascot, what would it be and what would you call it? If Fillory had a mascot. Wow. Um, I don't know. I... Uh... That's a good question. There's so many creatures in Fillory and so much magic and so much to explore. Um, I mean, I'd say this season Margot and Elliot are the mascots of Fillory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I think uh, it's their domain this season, so you know you get to see us come to grips with it in a way that's, um, I hope, really fun for everyone to watch and uh, little moments of, uh, you know dramatic tension and all the stuff you love in a, in a, in a fun, entertaining TV show. So I, 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 I vote Margot and Elliot. Hale, you know, this season takes it places a lot of pressure on Elliot and the gang as the existence of magic itself is threatened. So in what ways will they be tested differently this season from last? Uh, well, the stakes are higher. Worlds are at stake. Um, and, you know, we have... Uh, we have a, a hit out on the beast, and we're trying to take him down as well as Julia trying to exact revenge on Reynard. So we have a couple, couple bad bad guys, and then you know Margot and Elliot are dealing with all sorts of uh, crazy drama at the castle. Um, you know, there's uh, some revolts from the people. There's uh, there's visitors from other lands that are a potential threat to the kingdom. It's um, it gets. It gets pretty hairy, you guys, I'm not going to lie. Well, that's one of the reasons why we loved season one of The Magicians, because you never knew it was going to happen, and I can only imagine how much it's going to be cranked up for season two, which, of course, you can watch every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock on Sci-Fi. Hail Appleman! All hail Appleman! Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, a lot happened last season on The Magicians Season 1, and quite a change, I think, coming in Season 2 for Margot. And we're talking to Summer Bischel all about it. Summer, how you doing? I'm great. It's good to be in New York. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, one of the things that we saw from Margot last season was her ability to kind of use manipulation as a weapon. So now that she's a destroyer, as we saw in one of the promos, what are some of the other <laughs> weapons we're going to see at her disposal? Well, now that she's High Queen, she has um, more weapons available to her, so there's going to be more damage done by Marco for sure. But she's also a pretty competent ruler. She's she's not a dumb girl. She just operates from instinct and doesn't always think before she says. Um, so there's definitely some declarations that she probably wishes she could take back this year. The consequences are a little more severe and fillery than at break pills. <laughs> And Summer, Margot's specialty is, of course, gossip, competition, and drama. So how will the threats she faces this season help her build on her specialty? 
Um, you know, she's not dealing with those themes anymore. It's much larger and, um, you know, and more complicated themes that she's confronted with. And I really enjoyed how she evolved this year and how they wrote for Margot. And, you know, last year was fun. It was great to play that. But um, it's definitely a more serious Margot because she does take her role pretty seriously as queen, and there is stuff to be done in Fillory. The entirety of Fillory is in shambles economically. Nobody knows what they're doing. So it's it's really not the fun gig that they thought it was going to be. They actually have to rule a kingdom. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we were talking to Hale Appleman a couple of minutes ago about the bond between Elliot and Margot and how things are going to be for them going forward. But last season, we kind of saw that bond tested when Elliot's boyfriend <laughs> came into the picture and the aftermath for that. So given how close they were early on, how difficult was it for you to shoot those particular scenes with Hale? You know, it's always a joy to work with Hale, and we do so much work offset as well for our characters to deepen the relationship and to enrich, in, you know, the material on the day. Um, and we really enjoy doing that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word difficult, but I, you know, obviously I am emotionally attached to their connection because um, it's been so much fun to play. So anytime the relationship is threatened, I, I'm probably a little threatened too. So it probably helped the performance. <laughs> like, get away from my man. <laughs> we had a joke on set with the actress who plays uh, Elliot's wife, Brittany Curran. She plays Fen on the show. And she'd always say, he's my husband. And we'd always play fight over him. <laughs> and he loved it that's awesome one day he said that I want you guys to just fight over me <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing like Hale sitting in the background like on a chair just eating grapes watching you two just tear each other to shreds <laughs> somebody's, gonna, did. somebody's gonna end up going through the catering table before it's all said and done <laughs> before every take you would always say light the columns of fire I mean you got it there for all Every take. And then he'd have the AD say it before he could say action. Why is a steel cage being created on set? Hale wanted it. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So I, I want to go back to season one and focus on the episode where Margot tries making gin, but instead created a genie, which I think was a hilarious moment. Uh, when you saw... <laughs> When you saw in the script how she was going to use the genie, what was your initial reaction? And when the camera stopped rolling, did you and the rest of the cast treat yourself to some gin, the drink, not the genie? Did you treat yourself to some 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 nice gin drinks? <laughs> we didn't, unfortunately. We're boring. Usually we're working so much that we can't. But um, that was a particularly fun episode. The guy who played the genie was hilarious. He had us cracking up all day. We loved doing that whole scene where he appears for the first time. And we, we I don't know if it made it into the cut, but we did a lot of improv throughout that scene. We're talking to Summer Bishop, who plays Margot on The Magicians. Of course, season two, you can watch every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock on Sci-Fi. Now, Summer, early on in the show, certain characters didn't know that they were capable of magic, but if you found out that one of your castmates on the show was in fact a magician, who do you think it would be? Probably Hale Appleman. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. Not sure. <laughs> he probably has potions in his hotel room as we speak. 
<laughs> he's, he's, I mean, he probably because he can if he can go to an AD and say, you know, say this when you know <clears throat> some of my my on screen wife are, are around each other or fighting, and he you know he has that that power over them. Yeah, I, I can see, <laughs> yeah. I can see that. You go to he's his a warlock for sure. Yeah, you go to his apartment. He has a he has an apothecary table in the middle of the living room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure he does. He <laughs> really wouldn't surprise me if I showed up at his place. <laughs> you know, speaking of Hale, I asked him this question earlier. I want to get your reaction. If you were to create an entry exam for a magician, what would your last question on it be, and why? Why do you want to be a magician? Yeah, that's actually what Hale that's said. That's exactly what he said. You guys are uncanny. Wow, okay. Wow. The bond everlasting. <laughs> it endures. It endures no matter what. That's crazy. Wow. Well, I mean, you were kind of talking about this earlier with uh, one of Nick's questions, but... Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of changes in store for Margo throughout this upcoming season. So without spoiling anything, how do you hope fans will feel about her by the end of this season? I hope that they respect her more. You know, she's she's not a dumb girl. She's not superficial or shallow. And I don't think that you saw those tones to her in the first season, but, but they definitely exist within her. And I think that she's, she's very capable and sometimes the smartest person in the room and some of the things she says really make sense so i i hope that they respect her a little more in that light and summer before we let you go finish this sentence if magic dies what if magic dies then so what <laughs> she's like oh, oh wow, wow. <laughs> it just seems like a lot of trouble. Like, <laughs> well, in Margot's case, like if magic dies, I still have a Biza. I still have my my drinks. I still have my go. you know my Elliot. So. Exactly. Well, wow. She can still, still get her dresses and gowns. She still has her wardrobe. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why they call her the Destroyer, which you can watch every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock on Sci-Fi on The Magicians. Of course, we've been talking to Margot herself, Summer Bischel. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. So, James, when you look up the definition of zero fucks given, I think Summer's answer to what happens if magic dies is, like, right there. It's like throwing the gauntlet down. I mean, jeez, man. I mean, I, I I, get what you're saying, though. That's the that's yeah. thing, you know? I mean, think about it. If you've seen season one of The Magicians, okay? Yeah. You've seen what they've gone through, all in the name of magic, especially right. Quentin. Especially Quentin, you know? And Julia. Think about them. I mean, even with Hale and with, Sum- and with um, Summer as well. Well, I mean, think, think about the way about, everything is everybody has gone through for this. And Penny, I mean, come on. Right, everybody, you know, it's just insane. It's like was this thing of magic supposed to be this wonderful and, and you know, mis- in a sense mysterious and just mystical thing, but really when you get down into it, it's really shitty. Like, yeah, you can make potions and you can summon things and whatever, but it's like at the end of the day, you know, what is worth all that if you're losing your hands or you're – Friends are getting killed, or who? Or you had to kill your lover. You know, it's just right. Exactly. It, it's just it sucks. You and know, it really it's, sucks. It's funny because one of the things I think that we love about Timeless, which of course is a fellow NBC Universal program, 
is that it shows the consequences of time travel. And I think what one of the things the magicians does that people don't even realize is that everybody thinks magic is this great and cool thing, and you don't think about what the consequences might be, and it seems like every week, or at least every other week, the magician shows you a new way that, hey, yeah, you well, might think magic is cool, but there are a lot of consequences. Well, like, I mean, going back to Elliot, there was a scene in season one where he's talking about his how he, how, how he first used magic for the first time, and he used it to kill this, like, bully, and he had to, like, yeah. walk in front of a bus, and it was like, boom, that was it. Like, holy shit! Yeah, exactly. You know, but, I mean, it's just... This season, you want to talk about a season where, again, the stakes are even higher because magic is not only threatened, but as we heard, you know, Fillory is not in the best place, you know, economically and a bunch of other places. So, you're put really, you're putting this pressure on these people who are, like, in their positive mid to late 20s, you know, on the show. That's a lot of pressure for somebody to have to do, especially at that age. Yeah, and Fillory's not necessarily used to having peril. Right. The other thing, I mean, if you if you look at um, the way Quentin talked about Fillory, how it was this magical place and how it was this wonderful place, things don't look so wonderful right now. It's and, like, and that's new for the people of Fillory as well. You know what it's like? It's like when you watch a movie and you're going, this family is going to this amusement park and they always say, ah, we've reached it. It's a map and it's this beautiful thing. They pull yeah. the map down and it's like destruction and utter chaos. Right, That's exactly. Fillory is. It's like, you have this book of Fillory. It's like, ah, this magic, magical place. And then you pull the book down and it's just like fucking shits everywhere. It's all gray. You know, there's holes in the castle walls. It's just run down. You know, it's not the best place. One chat one's dead, the other one is wreaking havoc all over the world kind of thing. It's like, oh, yeah. wow, what's going on? Yeah, man. But, I mean, we cannot wait, you know, to see what happens in season two of The Magicians. It's going to be a fun, and I think it's going to be a very, very dark season as well. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at Down and Nerdy 757. I'm at Merck with one arm on both Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch. The one is spelled out. And hey, I'm going to be streaming on Twitch. I do a couple times a week. Be sure to check my Merck with one arm Twitter page. I'll tell you what game I'm going to be streaming and also what time I'm going to be streaming as well. Usually 10 o'clock Eastern for anybody, <laughs> at 7 o'clock Pacific for anybody that's wondering what time. So if you want to go, like, put on a learning your phone or something. That's when you want to do it. So that's when Nick usually streams. If you want to find me on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. But there is a place you can find all this information. It's at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, passive comic reading, always bragging board your comics.